a myopic squint, thin, ungenerous lips, and copious facial hair. Nevertheless, her husband could be found sleeping at all the important school functions. He was a taxidermist with thickly walled spectacles and a waist that began at his armpits. Mrs. Urquhart taught Shakespeare as a series of morality lessons, chiefly about the institution of marriage. Girls, she screeched in her Glaswegian brogue. Girls, Lady Macbeth drove her husband to a bloodthirsty end, proving once again that the criticisms of a wife are best kept to herself, lest her husband take them to heart and slaughter his way to the throne. In a flash, the hand of Miss Julia Clare would shoot up, entwined by the recalcitrant braid, intent on an urgent and passionate rebuttal. The scholarly badger, who hated contradiction and despised the Socratic method, would cast a blind eye to the twitching braid until her pupil's gasps became too insistent to ignore. What is that, Miss Clare? Perhaps Mrs. Urquhart, Lady Macbeth, was simply fed up with listening to her husband complain about his station in life. I can hear Miss Clare speak louder next time. Mrs. Urquhart smiled as if that settled the matter. Consider Macbeth, Mrs. Urquhart, the girl persisted. No backbone, no confidence, believing a gaggle of old biddy stirring a cauldron. I mean, what a dope of a Scotsman! A hush of delight spread across the classroom as the girls watched their mentoress blanch. Her great badgerly whiskers rose in outrage. She removed her misty tortoiseshell glasses and drew up her massive Caledonian breast. Are you presuming to define Shakespeare's true intention four hundred years after his death, Miss Clare? Even as she trembled before this woman, there was in Julia Clare a stubborn refusal to be intimidated by anyone. So softly she replied, No more than you are, Mrs. Urquhart. Now the gnarled, nicotine-stained fingers of her teacher, clutching a yellowed and crusty handkerchief, stabbed the air in the direction of the door. Get out of my class! With pleasure, Mrs. Urquhart. Julia Clare took the familiar route to the office of the headmistress, sitting in penitence on a hard oaken bench in the foyer, punishment far worse, in fact, than any time spent with the headmistress. Mrs. Grace Bunsen, a woman unrelated to the inventor of the famous burner, yet possessed of a bright flame of hair, the colour of double Gloucester cheese, curiously similar to the hair of Julia's future husband, by virtue of her mercy reinforced Julia's belief that a Christian name is a window into one's character. Said Grace, Julia, when when you realise that some opinions, however inspired, are best kept to yourself? Forgive me, Miss Bunsen, but every word out of Mrs. Urquhart's mouth is insulting to women. With a dignified frown, Grace Bunsen would ask for the particulars, which produced considerable mirth when she conveyed them to the faculty. Julia was unaware of her fame in the faculty lounge. It was Mrs. Urquhart's butchery of Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing that dissolved Julia's veil of respect. Beatrice was Julia's favourite character, sharp-spoken, sceptical of love, but when stoked, possessed of a fiery passion. Most of all, Julia loved Beatrice's tongue, for she was a character armed with quick and witty retorts, a woman who always knew what to say. It wasn't as though Mrs. Bunsen hadn't warned Julia ahead of time. Julia.
You're certainly entitled to disagree with her, but do try to express it without insulting her heritage. She provokes me. She's your teacher, Julia. Further arguments could lead to your expulsion. The last thing Julia wanted was to disturb the volatile relationship between her parents. Her father, Adam Clare, a bureaucrat at the Electricity Supply Commission in Johannesburg, had never made enough money to please his wife and couldn't wait for the weekends to go hunting or fishing. Her mother, aptly named Rose, was startlingly beautiful, prickly to the touch, a woman who had criticism for everyone, especially her daughter. The only thing worse than the disharmony at home was the prospect of being sent home to be the source of it. In the next month, Julia behaved herself while Mrs. Urquhart blamed Desdemona for Othello's bad end, and Juliet for tempting Romeo. Julia, to her credit, resisted the thrashing Mrs. Urquhart gave her beloved Beatrice until almost the very end. She remembered the warnings of her headmistress, and perhaps in the disapproval of Mrs. Urquhart she heard a more primal voice, the voice of Rose, who found her daughter's presence so unsatisfactory that she had bundled her after boarding school at the age of seven. The classics teacher observed her young foe's reticence, hands buried under her knees, mouth zipped shut, so when it seemed clear that her gadfly wouldn't sting, she ended her lecture with this final remark. You'll notice how often Beatrice seeks the last word in any scene, clearly an insecure and weak young woman. A weak woman. Beatrice? The girls turned for the volley. Julia bit her lips so hard she could feel the blood on her tongue. Her mind was fixed on Mrs. Bunsen's warning. Still, the faces of the girls were trained on her while their astute harpy gloated in triumph. Julia then, without realising it, fixed one eye on the puckered face of her teacher and raised a sceptical eyebrow. Madam, if what you say about Shakespeare reflects life, then all men are the dupes of women, and all women are the mistresses of their destruction. What would Mr. Urquhart say to that, I wonder? Heads were lowered to desks as if to avoid the return fire from this verbal torpedo. Mrs. Urquhart squinted, regarding the mock innocence of her assailant with a bobbing craw. Miss Clare, you'll nay sit in my class air again, she sputtered. Julia was found by her father at the train station, in her uniform, a blue and grey tartan, a wide straw hat and white knee socks. Perched on a large trunk, she cradled her dog-eared copy of Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. Well, missy, he said, what a mess we're in now. He was a striking man, tall, with blue-black hair cropped short, thick eyebrows and strong cheekbones. I'm so sorry, Papa, she replied. He deflected her apology with a soft shrug. How's Mummy? Tell me all the news. Her father hesitated, then said, The thing is, missy, your mother and I are divorced. The sun broke through the fever trees, and Julia tried to shield the harsh light from her eyes with both hands. What? she said, hoping she had misheard and yet knowing she hadn't. Our marriage is over. When? Oh, last Christmas, actually. Her father swallowed. Oh, we were going to tell you this next summer, I suppose, but, uh, well, here you are. Here she was, a loose end to the marriage, an attached string somebody had forgotten to clip.
What will I do? she asked. Well, luckily they've accepted you at St. Mary's. He smiled. You'll continue your studies, grow up, and have a wonderful life. It just doesn't seem right to name a child after oneself, Julia told Howard as she looked at her new baby boy, when he may not feel kinder towards you later in life. What could he possibly have against me? I'm certainly not going to make my father's mistakes. Howard laughed. Julia didn't answer. She recalled her parents making only one mistake, marrying each other. Though the lament baby's eyes were closed, the power of his smile was astounding. If ever a child possessed a confident spirit, this one excelled in that regard. No parent could doubt that this baby, in spite of his lack of a name, was destined for a happy life. As the crow flies, southern Rhodesia lay 630 miles north of Johannesburg. It was a different country, a British colony where a young, educated white South African might find new opportunities. In 1956, fresh from Cape University, Julia Clare found a position teaching art and English in a primary school while she pursued her painting career. Howard Lament was offered an engineering position at the Municipal Waterworks in Ludlow, a township thirty miles south of Salisbury. It was Ludlow where they met and fell in love, and their lives might have been no more remarkable than those of any other happy couple, had it not been for Dr. Samuel Underberg. The man responsible for changing their lives was head of the obstetrics ward at Salisbury's Mercy Hospital. Underberg was a remarkable doctor, a man who had logged twenty years and thirty thousand miles delivering African babies and running a postnatal clinic from the back of his mud-spattered Land Rover. His face was rough.